by 2020, I think China has invested around 139.8 billion USD in BRI projects, and that's a huge sum. So I think for the United States and its allies, this is not a good thing, and they believe that they need to offer something to the world so that the countries could have an option not to rely on China. In principle, we welcome such an initiative from the United States, from other any other countries. Because we need cooperation, we need the competition to compare and let the rest of the world to see which initiative could be more beneficiary to the country and to the local people and even to the local economic development. And secondly, also, this is very important for technical exchange between different countries and the companies. I think it has no chance, if we want to compare it to the Marshall Plan, no chance. We, we keep seeing all of these sort of reactionary projects and programs coming out of Washington. And it, it says more to do with trying to respond to what China than really trying to construct something long term. Ultimately, I think what we're looking at here is uh, something that the Biden administration has dreamed up that might or might not survive uh, the midterm elections as a policy or program, and uh, very doubtful would it survive the end of his first term in office, because all indications are now he won't make it to a second term. The Chat Lounge. Chat Lounge. Chat Lounge. The Chat Lounge unpacks views and opinions on hot issues in a more casual way. Welcome to The Chat Lounge. I'm Tuyun. The United States is set to partner with its G7 allies to embark on a global infrastructure initiative to counter China's influence, especially in the Indo-Pacific region. So joining our chat on the outlook of such a scheme are Dr. Li Peimei, Assistant Professor of Political Science at the International Islamic University, Malaysia. Liu Zhuqin, Senior Fellow at the Chongyang Institute for Financial Studies of Beijing-based Renmin University of China, and Professor Joseph Mahoney of East China Normal University in Shanghai. Welcome to you all. Um, some U.S. officials have stated that the U.S.-led Global Infrastructure Initiative should not be described as a confrontation with China, but an alternative path. So, what messages do you think they intend to convey? Let me start with May. Thank you for the questions. I think for the U.S., they see that many countries uh, have developed very deep economic ties with China. And this kind of dependency on China for investment actually has given China leverage over other countries. So if you look at some statistics, uh, by 2020, I think China has invested around 139.8 billion USD in BRI projects, and that's a huge sum. So I think for the United States and its allies, this is not a good thing, and they believe that they need to offer something to the world so that the countries could have an option not to rely on China. So I think this is a message that the United States wants to bring to the world. In a way, the United States hopes that the Global Infrastructure Initiative could potentially reduce China's influence. So it's short, it is a response to China's BRI, but it's not a direct confrontation with China. Mm, Jinxing, what's your take there? Yes, I think I have a mixed uh, opinion about the attitude from the United States. As we know that uh, in principle, we should welcome all these uh, corporations and the competition from other sides of the world, not only to confront uh, with the China's PRI initiative, but also I think if this uh, proposal or initiative is in the benefits of the receiving country and the people, uh, that is good. If they have a 
put this uh, initiative politicized or with other purpose, for instance, to compare or to restrain China from its development. This is wrong. But in principle, we welcome such an initiative from the United States, from other, any other countries, because we need cooperation, we need a competition to compare and let the rest of the world to see uh, which initiative could be more beneficiary to the country and to the local people and even to the local economic development. And secondly, also, this is very important for technical exchange between different countries and the companies. Because as we know, the infrastructure project is very, very complicated, including all technological points, including talented people, including management, and including also the after-sale service management. All this combined together is really a, a very complicated project. If United States can show its advantage that China also can learn. But of course, if China's project can provide more advantage to the world or, the, or along the Belt and Road Initiative countries, that could be also uh, to the beneficiary of the United States itself. But uh, I hope that uh, this initiative could only be discussed and negotiated economically and commercially, but no more political size. This is very important because if some Western media always try to say that the United States is trying to restrain the influence from China from its Belt and Road Initiative, but actually, as I know, as I understand, but because from the very beginning of the Chinese initiative, I got to know that we really want to help those developing countries to develop their own economic with Chinese experience. What's the experience we have? That means if you want to get rich, you have to construct a road. Build up road, you will get possibility to have more opportunities to get rich. This is only the very simple thinking of Chinese project. That's why we want to introduce such experience to the rest of the world. Mm, very inclusive opinion. And yes, politicizing everything is a concern for, for many people. And Joseph, your opinion here? Well, I, I think I have two key points here. The first, which I'm going to take issue with this term Indo-Pacific. You know, this was a term that's become, I think, um, too normal in our discourse. Uh, but I think we should recall that um, it was a, a term that was first created by a German scholar in the 1920s as part of a German neo-colonial fantasy of creating alliances from Japan to Southeast Asia, which, you know, at that time was being referred to as uh, French Indochina all the way to India. And this scholar would, in fact, go on to mentor uh, Hitler and Hess with his idea of geopolitics and influence their worldview and uh, eventually their alliance with Japan in World War II. More recently, uh, starting in 2007, the conservative former Japanese Prime Minister uh, Shinzo Abe reintroduced this term Indo-Pacific to the contemporary lexicon. And it found favor with the Hindu nationalist government in India. And also it found favor um, in Washington, which you know has tried to construct these alliances stretching from Japan to India under the rubrics of the Quad, AUKUS, and so on, all aimed very, very specifically at containing and competing with China in this broader region. The U.S. has even described it as stretching from Hollywood to Bollywood. Anyway, I think we should be careful when we're using this term, again, normatively, given both its Nazi connections and its contemporary associations with U.S. hegemony and Japanese and Hindu nationalism. That said, you know, because I'm clearly being too sensitive to language here, this saying that it's not a confrontation by Washington 
This is really a word that they're trying to avoid when appealing to countries in the, especially the South Pacific and, and Southeast Asia and South Asia, because they don't want to, in, in this initial phase of trying to introduce this program of competing with China head to head or in a confrontational sense, because um, right now they, this program doesn't compete very well at all. China has many more years of experience uh, uh, promoting this. China has 150 countries worldwide that have signed uh, MOUs on Belt Road Initiative, and China has committed $4.3 trillion so far from what I've seen. Not all of that has been spent, but I'm saying these are long-term commitments. And what uh, Washington is proposing is far smaller um, with a lot of conditions. But that said, you know, I think clearly Washington is trying to get into the game, uh, particularly in, in the South Pacific, given uh, China's relative success in cultivating uh, closer ties with those countries. There are a lot of independent countries in the South Pacific. They account for a lot of votes in the United Nations. They carry implications for security in this part of the world. So, and the U.S. and, and Australia and some of the other countries uh, have neglected these countries for, for several decades, whereas China's been building positive ties. So with the Biden administration, we, we saw when they first took power, he, he basically said that he was going to try to compete with China on every front. That's what this is. This is a competition. But in terms of messages, I think, I think I'll reiterate uh, what the other guests said, that, that uh, developing countries have a choice. I do think, however, that the choice here, because one of the conditions of this program appears to be that a country has to be a democracy in order to join it or, or take part of it. And I, what I would imagine is we've seen, for example, China signing recently a security alliance with the Solomon Islands. We know that China has been providing a lot of uh, aid and development support uh, for the Solomons. But we also know that there's an opposition party in uh, the Solomon Islands who uh, maybe the U.S. is trying to entice you know, one of the things the U.S. often does is it, it gets into the internal affairs of other countries. It tries to buddy up with one political party to try to curry favor with them and to build relationships with them in order to maybe promote that party in a future election, especially if the if the party in power has been favoring relations with China or some other competitor that uh, Washington wants to push back against. So, yeah, I think that there's this um, message that you have choices, but it's it's a sort of a strange choice in the context of uh, the broader containment strategy that we see uh, the U.S. launching, which again includes AUKUS and um, the Quad and, and uh, uh, you know, encouraging Japan to create uh, strike capabilities with their military, uh, upgrading uh, the missile systems and putting them under uh, U.S. control in, in South Korea and proliferating nuclear submarines to, to Australia. So all of these things, I think, uh, are, are part of the, the, the broader strategy. And uh, for me, when we connect it to the history of the term, the Indo-Pacific, and how it's come back into our language, I see it as a very dark trajectory. Uh, we'll dive into how competitive this initiative can be, especially when compared with um, China's um, Belt and Road Initiative. But let's just take it as a, an economic initiative. So, Jujing, I understand that you've worked with the bank, banking sector and the government departments, a lot of uh, industries, uh, sectors. Uh, so I'm wondering, usually, how is such an initiative um, implemented or uh, how a project could be started under such an initiative? Can you give us a brief introduction to it? Okay, I try to give you a brief introduction, but you know the, the project is so complicated, so you need a lot long time to, to tell the whole story, but sure. I think the other two professors they know uh, also something about this project. As I know, that as a, uh, we should uh, 
do all this project according to international practices. Because the Chinese initiative from its very beginning will be linked with the international law, with the international rules, including environmental, including all the human rights, including the labor law, all the laws that uh, as international companies uh, followed. So in principle, how to implement all the project, especially for Chinese initiative, three steps should be followed closely. First is to go through all the law procedures. That is just uh, the law system is very important with the precondition to get this uh, project approval by the department concerned, especially by this uh, environmental protection department in different countries. If approved and then come to the second step, the relevant uh, project for the company should provide a feasibility study. Such a document is a very basic but important to implement our whole project. The feasibility study that are including all the financial, commercial, and the environmental evaluation by professionals and by international agencies. This will be implemented by independent organizations. This is a very normal practice. And the third, all the project that the Chinese partner should take part in the local bid for tendering. That means the Chinese side should all provide all your documents, what to do, how to do, including financial situation, your record of commercial side, and also your project experiences that could be qualified as a right partner. So if these are three major, of course, we have also some other steps should be done or should be followed. But these, these three major steps are very essential. So this is a quite a complicated, long procedure. We need a lot of negotiations and discussions. Of course, all the competition and should be welcomed during the negotiation. For instance, if any other partners should like to join it, should go through all these procedures and especially go to the bid for tendering. That's why that China and discussed with the international organizations and also other countries that we build up the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank in order to be in charge of all the financial side. And this bank will do all this transparent equally, the legal system that according to international organizations such the World Bank, IMF, and the European Central Bank and Asia Development Bank, ADB. All these banks are good partners of AIB. That the board member composed from different countries, that not only Chinese bankers, but all the bankers from the major economics and also other countries, that we can have very open, very transparent discussion platform to grant the project whether they are qualified for environmental production, whether they are good for the local economic development, whether all this project could be sustainable for the local government. In order to get all these conditions that are to be recognized and approved. So all these procedures are finished, I think the project can really uh, start in a, a regular way. So all these projects and the contract implication will be monitored and supervised by special organs, by special organization from the local government and also from the supply side. So the supply side and the demand side, the both will be closely linked 
to find the best solution. So this is, I know as a banker, because I took some project in concrete before years that to discuss with the local authorities and the local people. Right. Were the negotiations difficult uh, when you were doing such projects? I bet it's difficult, right? Yes, uh, negotiation sometimes is quite difficult, as just uh, Joseph has already said, because some political forces or some political uh, politicians try to opposite or mm. try to find something in a different angle, different ways. Right. This is uh, we always met because this is a uh, some uh, troublemaker. They don't want to have such project proceeded without any difficulties. That's why some American, I have to say frankly here, that if Chinese partner in one country already tried to implement one project, and somebody always tried to find the opposite forces, opposite parties to say no, because for environmental protection or even from labor law, for any other exclusive, they could easily find such problems to give the reasons that to uh, destroy or to against such a project. But uh, all these negotiations will be discussed very openly, very transparent. Even in during this local government, we can discuss from the in public media, in local TV program, to discuss all points of something. But if the project is politicized, this is something different, as I know that some project had already come to the end of negotiation and then suddenly that just stopped and destroyed it because some special problem happened as I mentioned that right. they don't want to have it. So this is the difficult point for negotiation. But in general speaking, all the negotiations and the discussions can be done in a very friendly, very open and a very sustainable way to find the right solution. The Chat Lounge. The Chat Lounge unpacks views and opinions on hot issues in a more casual way. Right, I can imagine it's a lengthy process. But uh, since you said it's a standardized um, um, procedure, like international practices, then what kind of um, advantages can the American side bring into this uh, field, especially when it comes to the countries in the region. Um, may I'm not sure if the U.S. side they can come with uh, easier access or, or or lower interest rates. You know, may you're you're from Malaysia, and as you know, someone from a country from that region. What do you expect, May? So before I go uh, answer your questions, I would like to go back to uh, a point that. Uh, Professor Joseph made about that the U.S.-led initiative will most likely involve democratic countries. I kind of like disagree because if the United States are going to exclude non-democratic countries, which means some of the countries in Southeast Asia, they wouldn't be part. They wouldn't be aligned with the United States to advance their interests of containing China. I use the word align not to mean that maybe they just participate in the initiative led by the United States. Uh, but they don't actually want it to um, contain China. So I give you an example like Brunei and Vietnam. They recently actually uh, participated in the IPF that was you know, rolled out by the United States recently. So if the United States they were to exclude a lot of like non-democratic countries, it also would mean that many of the countries in the Middle East region will be excluded. So based on what Jack Sullivan said, he said that in the past, the United States has had been working with the uh, non-democracies. There's no issue about that. But he just wants to work with countries that actually agree to uphold 
uh, rules-based order, which means, you know, the current order, which the United States wish to maintain. Mm. So that's one point I just want to make. And um, regarding this US-led initiative, I think the difference between BRI and this uh, US-led initiative is that the US-led initiative, they rely more on private sector funding, whereas BRI projects, they were mostly funded by the two Chinese policy banks, as well as state-owned commercial banks. So I think one of the benefit uh, or advantage of the US-led initiative would be that it provides more opportunities for private sector participation. So which is the good news for the private sector, and since when we talk about the US-led initiative, which relies more on private sector funding, hence we expect the deal to be more transparent and possibly more funding could be raised uh, from this US-led initiative. You know? And because of that, I expect to see that low and middle income countries are going to benefit a lot from this. Mm. But my question is how appealing the investment or the U.S.-led initiative is to the private sector. You know, uh, I read news about this uh, project in India. I'm not sure if you've heard of its latest development. You know, the Japanese high-speed rail contract has experienced what they experienced in India. You know, this 500-kilometer Mumbai, Ahmedabad high-speed rail, it, it was scheduled to finish next year. But now the completion date has been pushed to late 2028. So that's five years behind schedule. And over the past five years, they only built 10 kilometers. I bet the contractors from the private sector could feel really frustrated when they have to deal with uh, local politics or some other you know, non-economic factors. So how appealing is it to the private sectors either in the U.S. or in Europe? I think there are some of the factors that they cannot account for. For example, you know, I think the COVID-19 basically meant that a lot of projects had to be delayed, um, basically because the government uh, instructed lockdowns. So mainly, I think one of the reasons why it was being delayed. Uh, and in, in fact, many projects in Malaysia, uh, it was scheduled to complete on certain date, but it has to be delayed due to this unprecedented, you know, disease uh, that that, that is happening. So I don't think it's a big thing to have projects delayed because um, when they, they give the completion date, it's always an estimate. Uh, nobody can really, truly, um, I mean, like they cannot account for all the externalities that happen, right? So, but I believe there are a lot of opportunities for the private sector because one thing we have to look at private sector, they just want profit. If they are going to invest in these projects that are going to give them a good return, um, I think it will be uh, attractive for them. Yeah. Mm, right. But the problem is a lot of uh, projects China is undertaking <laughs> seem not that profitable. And also about the high-speed rail project in India, it's not mm-hmm. about, it's not mainly delayed by this uh, pandemic. It's mainly about the, the local politics. You know, they cannot acquire uh, the land they needed as scheduled. Yeah. So there's a lot of, um, you know, barriers there. So, uh, Joseph, what's your take? In terms of uh, how appealing, well, I think the first the first thing to to go back to um, Washington has not said that they will only give the, the funding to democracies, but what they've said is uh, like minded countries, and that's been widely interpreted as favoring democracies. And there's also been a number of studies so far, analyses published in leading foreign affairs journals suggesting that uh, Washington's initiative will not compete very well in Southeast Asia and and other places where there are are not democracies. That's that's the first point. So the second point is, 
you know, one of the interesting things about the, the financing vehicles that we're seeing uh, discussed so far is that they're all based in the U.S., at least from what I've seen, and, and they include the Development Finance Corporation, USAID, XM, the Millennium Challenge Corporation, uh, the U.S. Trade and Development Agency, uh, the Transaction Advisory Fund. And um, it's also clear that the Biden administration is trying to connect this to other domestic projects, for example, the American Jobs Plan, as well as uh, maybe some of the attempts to stimulate uh, some of the infrastructure building companies in the U.S. and to get them competitive abroad against some of China's big uh, construction companies. Although we, we see the G7 mentioned, you know, the, I think these, this is sort of an olive branch to, to some of these other countries saying your firms can, can compete for funding or financing from the U.S., um, I think it's still trying to, you know, keep the dollar front and center. I think it's still part of this dollar hegemony. Uh, the dollar is the supranational currency scheme. Um, I think one of the things that Washington deeply fears is, is the extent to which China, China's influence is growing, not just in terms of, of financing these products, but the eventuality that the dollar may no longer be central to any of them. The next thing to keep in mind is that these are going to uh, allegedly appeal to private sector companies. Private sector companies generally want a substantial chance of return in order to take risk. And, you know, generally speaking, when we're talking about infrastructure development, we're sometimes looking at um, long-term investments where you don't see substantial returns for 20 years. And I don't know any companies in the U.S. right now that are looking, that have that sort of horizon they don't look ahead. They don't have that sort of security. They don't have that type of political climate from administration to administration to ensure that all of these things would would stay in tune and continue to work over that period of time. So I think this is part of the reason why we see the U.S. saying that they're going to concentrate in four areas. I won't say these areas are insubstantial, but they're they're not the sort of big projects I think that we would that we would associate with infrastructure projects they they, they they might be relatively modest they might be relatively large in some respects but the four areas are climate health and health security digital technology and uh, gender equity and equality now these are all you know very nice publicity sounding terms and if they go out and improve these aspects of the world then then, then fantastic but um, how do you attract private sector funding to these types of projects? In other words, if these types of projects already were available, if they were, if, if you could already go out and invest in these, if you could already go out and make a profit in these, why isn't the private sector already doing that? What is the U.S. government going to bring to it in order to make this more palatable for uh, the private sector? That hasn't been made clear yet. Um, I think finally, if we look at this in terms of some of the there have been a number of financing projects, one in Ethiopia, for example, that are seen as prototypes of where this project may be going. The terms that are being used to describe uh, what, what many people suspect the U.S. approach will be is that the U.S. is going to invest or promote projects that have strategic interest, right, that are serving the broader strategic interest of the United States. And this is where I go back to the, the broader strategic uh, umbrella of projects that the U.S. has underway right now. Whereas what we see with BRI is that they're generally uh, described as being interest-driven, right? Now, these two words, they're, they're not necessarily opposites, but interest-driven, right? So interest is maybe there's a project in Sri Lanka, they have an interest in it, and Beijing has an interest in it. And so 
um, okay, let's finance that and do it, right? Whereas the US appears to be much more selective in terms of the projects that it's promoting and trying to secure financing for. Again, to, to uh, what, what early analyses are indicating is going to be a strategic approach versus China's go wide and go large. Hmm. I just said, uh, maybe it's not so lucrative, but that's just my, my assessment. What's the real you know, situation? Jitsing, probably you can, you can give us some tips. How profitable are those projects? Are they you know, lucrative enough to, to attract uh, private sectors from the U.S. or from uh, European countries to, to take part? Yeah, this is a very good question because uh, everybody knows that the U.S. and the European companies are really profit-driven and companies that uh, there's no profit, they will not go there. Even they are like-minded countries. If they no profit and more risky, so they don't go there. This is very clear. And also, this is a right decision. So even for Chinese companies, also we like to have more profit and the, and the interest there. But we have to identify all whether this profit or the interest costed on the local environment or local security or local labor rights. All this should be considered as a whole for this project. Because I have been working for European banks for more than 30 years, so I know some procedures and the principles there even. I still remember 40 years before when I visited the United States at the first time, my delegation delegates so uh, surprised to see how advanced that their infrastructures, their highways, something. But nowadays, if you go there, you, the picture totally changed because the United States, even in European countries, the infrastructure are not so advanced as in China, not so convenient, not so comfortable. The picture is totally different. So in this way that we find that we should really help these those countries that to consider if they want to build infrastructure there. The first priority to be considered is whether they can bring the benefits and the profits there. How to make these profits? Normally, it should be discussed and evaluated during the feasibility study. The feasibility study is made is done by local government and the local authorities and the local companies, they will see how much they pay that is the cost, the general cost. For instance, one trillion US dollar. How long it will take to pay back to cover all this cost? One trillion. You need 10 years or even 20 years. Okay, in 20 years later, you will have net profit. That means the income is more than expenditure. But I have to say frankly, according to the infrastructure, highway or high-speed train railway uh, project, Normally, it's a profit loss project in long run. Why? Because of the economic development and also the passengers' conditions always change in 10 or 20 years. All the projects at the very beginning is always regulated or evaluated profit earnings. But at the end of this the project or even 20 years later, you will find all these companies are profit loss losing. Why? In, West, in Germany, you can see that all the railway companies, they are heavy losers in the economic development. In America also, they need the subsidies from the government. So all these infrastructure projects, I should say this is not only a commercial profit project, they are a little bit a public charity project. That means from the government, from the public, they should consider. Anyhow, in the long run, they should 
support and give more financing facilities to continue to make this project sustainable? This is a very practical question we should pay attention. Even all these feasibility studies always say that, okay, our project is profitable in 10, 20 years, but in fact, the most of them losing. Why? Not only the, because of the feasibility study is not adequate, not uh, very professional because of this, for instance, exchange rate, the global market changing and the turbulence and also geopolitical conflicts, that all these uh, outside condition changing could have great influence or impact on this profit receiving. So this is a very important thing that for all government to consider this uh, problem. But of course, in Chinese project in outside, we have met not only such challenges, but also we have to deal with all the rumors made by some Western media. So for instance, all the Belt and Road Initiative in Africa or in South Asian countries, they are having the debt trap. That means that China's project made that local government have more loans and the credit facilitated from Chinese bankers. So the local government has to give up some natural resources as a pay for Chinese loans, but that is not a fact. Because all this project has been studied and researched and make conclusion during the feasibility study. I, I think... I think one of the things that, that we should keep in mind when we distinguish the Chinese approach and when, when we're thinking about how does it benefit China, uh, how does it benefit China in terms of a return on investment, take the example of uh, building ports, okay? So let's say China finances uh, building a port in Sri Lanka or in the Mediterranean or somewhere else. That country uh, gets the benefit of having the port, but China also gets the benefit, right? On the one hand, China puts its state-owned construction company to work, right? And they need this work now because so many of the massive development projects in China have, have been completed and, and they have this incredible capacity that they need to employ overseas to keep that part of the Chinese economy humming. Mm. So we can redirect this and start moving it out. But secondly, China has innovated new technologies related to shipping uh, and, and ports. And it's trying to uh, increase, uh, get a critical mass of these Chinese built ports around the world because it wants to be the standard maker for the new technology, uh, the IP, all of the stuff related to shipping and logistics. And we know that most of what's shipped in the world originates in China, right? And so having this network, having it connected in all of these ways, it creates a number of benefits that go far beyond whether or not Sri Lanka uh, makes its payment uh, on the port, right? In other words, China is benefiting in a much broader way. And I think this is what breaks down when we compare it to the, to the US-led approach. Um, the US-led approach would say, okay, uh, let's have a company go and create a, and we'll help them finance, or they will we'll help arrange some of the financing or try to secure the relationship. Um, but how all of this creates this collection or this, this these uh, carry-on benefits, that doesn't really accrue to a private company the way it accrues to China broadly. And I think that's where BRI makes more sense than what we see, even if some of the projects in terms of the specific project doesn't appear to be profitable in, in terms of whether or not they're making their payment as planned. The Chat Lounge. The Chat Lounge unpacks views and opinions on hot issues in a more casual way. Actually, what Jiting and Joseph just mentioned about um, the strength or 
those uh, Western countries rem- remind me of the project in in California. It's also another high speed rail. It's some uh, I think it's about three hundred and eighty miles. Uh, it's a high speed rail project linking Los Angeles with uh, San Francisco. It was launched in two thousand eight, and it's still under construction today. It's it's um not only far behind schedule, but also much more costly than planned. The cost of the project was um, has risen from an estimate of uh, thirty thirty three billion dollars in two thousand eight to ninety three point five billion dollars this year. So it's nearly two hundred and fifty million dollars a mile. Um, that's roughly ten times the cost of of a China built high speed rail. If they don't have this capacity or don't have this uh, edge technology they needed, like Joseph just mentioned, how can they compete or win the deals in that region? So May, what's your take here? Well, I think from the Western way, their practices is that it's true open tender. I mean, you have to prove that you have completed a major projects and then you are capable. And then, of course, it's based on the, the cost that you offer to them. And from there, they will make a selections of which companies they think will be more suitable to undertake the project. Uh, I just want to also add on just now what about profits, you know. Personally, for me, I think the US-led initiative, I'm going to maintain to say that it's going to attract private sector Mm. interest because we we have to understand they go in as not as the owner of the project. So which means they don't have to bear the cost, even though, for example, if you build a railway and it's not making money, uh, it has nothing to do with them. They go in as contractors, they go in as funders, they go in as uh, companies that offer skills and technology mm, uh, and also know-how yeah, to the people. So if they go in as the funder, so basically who are going to pay the bills of constructing, for example, like you say, a railway uh, is going to be the com- uh, the countries and the people are going to pay for it. So at the end of the day, this private sector, they're also they're still going to get profit out of it. So I also have a different opinion uh, mm. from Joseph mm. in the uh, in the sense that I, I agree that probably the United States will support projects that has strategic interests. But I also think it's much more difficult for the U.S. as a free trade economy to just ask one company to go in to build a project in developing countries with no no profit. You know, it's difficult because they are a free market. So at the end of the day, I think the companies, they are going to get some money, but the money is either coming from the U.S. or it's coming from the countries that where the railways are built. And so yeah, that's my point. And according yeah. to the U.S. side, also from G7 uh, other G7 countries, then do you, do you expect them very willing to pitch in? Or how much can they put in? To this project, if if we look at current situation, I think um, you know many countries are now facing a lot of issues like rising inflation, energy crisis, and also possible um, recession. So currently, it makes more sense for the leaders to actually devote their resources and money to address domestic needs first. So, but at the same time, you know the United States constantly engages allies and they highlight the risk of a rise in China. So it makes the G7 countries, they need to play along. But I suppose they have to be selective because they can't be giving most of their resources to other countries when their people are facing crisis back home. But again, I think this initiative is a long-term thing. So their level of commitments may change depending on the external and internal situations. So so that's, that's what I think. For now, I think they are not going to be very committed, but yet they need to sort of like response to U.S. requests of, you know, engaging with different countries to spread 
the United States and its allies' influence as a way actually to counter China's influence. But let's be clear. Let's be clear. They're they're not talking about building railways or ports. Those are mm-hmm. those are major infrastructure, heavy infrastructure uh, projects. They they won't be doing that according to the their four areas of focus. Now, we, we might interpret those four areas in, in different ways. But you know, again, climate, health, and health security, digital technology, and gender equity and equality. You know, digital technology is clearly something that uh, the United States uh, wants to compete with China on. We've certainly seen this in terms of um, their efforts to demonize Huawei globally and and to make uh, Huawei unwelcome in in American allies' um, economies. So we will be looking at, I think, a much narrower and a much smaller type of project. But even then, well, like, um, you know, one of the big issues when, when the Solomons got hit by the volcano, or not, was it not Solomon's? Where, where was it down there in, in the South Pacific? It's too many uh, crises in recent times to remember correctly. But one of the issues they had was that their communication system uh, went down. And a lot of these small island countries, they have very weak, they have 3G uh, technology, and they need to upgrade to 4G and maybe even 5G at some point. Um, that's the type of project that Huawei wants to go in and build. And that's the type of project that the US wants to block. So what they might do is try to find a, a European company or a South Korean company and arrange some sort of financing project. So that company will go in and grab that market share. And I think they, they feel you like think, they can- You think they got a competitive edge there? I, I, I don't think, in terms of pricing, they don't have a competitive edge, but in terms of, of you know, trying to um, create this fear that, that Huawei is going to give the Chinese government uh, uh, the opportunity to spy on them. This is the, the narrative that's been promoted by Washington and that uh, instead you can have this other technology and be closer to us and, and you know, whatever. I think these are the, the, these are the type of narratives that have been proliferating in the, in the anti-China global discourse that the U.S. has promoted. Um, and it's had, some, it's had some impact, even though there's, you know, no study has shown that Huawei is moving that way, that everything's been transparent, uh, that it's not a state-owned company, so forth and so on. But yeah, I think that's the type of project that, you, you know, again, where we're talking about a strategic interest, but something that isn't as big as, as building a railroad and um, maybe more manageable. Then which countries in the region do you, do you expect to get uh, really interested in the West or G7's offer? I think it's been clear that the U.S. would like to be a bigger player in India. I mean, so much of the FDI that's coming into India now, from from what I can see, is coming from from uh, China, and uh, this is, of course, uh, really complicated uh, the American efforts to drag uh, India into the quad. India has the most to lose in terms of the economic benefits that it gets from China and in terms of sharing uh, a contested border with China, it, it, it would bear the, the overwhelming cost associated with that alliance. And I have to uh, think that uh, this is in part aimed uh, specifically at India. You know, one would say probably also it, it, it was envisioned as trying to appeal to Vietnam, but I, I don't think, you know, I, I, the U.S. has made overtures to Vietnam, but uh, I do think that they're going to, at least under this project, you know, there are other projects that they have uh, where they can make some overtures to Vietnam. But uh, clearly the U.S. is interested in, in competing now with China in the South Pacific. Uh, again, I, for me, the, the central the central project here is the digital technology. I think the other stuff is just window dressing because we've got the pandemic, because we've got, uh, you know, the, the publicity friendly thing related to women's issues, which as a feminist, I completely support, but I don't really see a lot of money, private sector money 
flowing to that as an investment. And maybe something related to uh, uh, climate change, although uh, China really dominates that market right now globally. There are some uh, European countries that uh, that might compete through the G7. But um, and then the stuff about health and health security. This has to do, you know, obviously with the the current uh, pandemic and the broader crisis, and and the sense that at least initially the U.S. didn't do much to help uh, other countries, and has been very selective in who it's helped since. Mm, and Juqing, do you have a different opinion? Or how big a market do you think the U.S. can carve away in this region if they if they don't use、um, hyperpower pressure? How competitive are they? As we know that、uh, the digital technology is something very special for most of the countries at the moment to understand the real sense. Because、um, even many scholars or engineers are talking about the digital infrastructure or something. But the, what's the meaning of the digital?、Um, I, I think seldom need to understand. Tele- Many commu- countries that try telecommunications try to, equipment or five G or four G things like that. Yeah, not only、uh, communication. For instance, I, I talked with some people in China in remote areas.、Uh, they always try to have five G communications. I said, for what purpose you need five G at the moment? You three G or four G quite enough because they just need some informations and movies and also. Music or game player, something. Five G is already too luxurious for them. Even for some Pacific, South Pacific countries,、uh, in my opinion, that five G at the moment maybe is too luxurious for them. Four、so、G or three G with the good service is quite already、uh, enough. Because in China, we in many cities in China, we still have three G or four G communications system. So it doesn't mean that five G or six G always the necessary for. Daily, daily jobs and daily work. It, it is only a benefit from the uh, uh, companies that are involved in innovation. But、uh, from the economic development and from other side, I don't think they will play a greater role. But in principle, as I said,、uh, in China we have already in the in this five year plan we have one point four trillion US dollar invest for the we call the new infrastructure project. And also, this will be, I think, will be transformed or transferred to South Pacific countries in order to help the people, to help the country, to be advancing in the new technology. That means, as we always say, that we have a common prosperity. We hope this common prosperity can be shared with all countries, including South Pacific or Indo-Pacific areas countries. We see that India is now well developed, but the India. Most of the people are still under very poor conditions. How can we imagine and help that those people to have five G communication, the high tech, to get their life with high quality? I don't think this is too early to talk about it. So that's why I always try to convince some partners and countries in this area, in this region, that first they should help their people to have enough to eat, to wear, to live, good house, good. Life quality, good health management, and the next step you can try to have five G even more better, six G digital technology to make your life better, but not too early, not too harsh, because this is a very important strategy for these countries. I think in the Western country, in Western country, in United States, in European countries, I don't believe they are really. Eager to help those poor areas to have 5G to have a, a better life than because 
the former president of the United States has already said, if the 1.3 billion Chinese people have the similar life quality as Americans, the Americans will be getting poor. So this is the, their philosophy of doing business. So I don't think in South Pacific or in Indo-Pacific countries, they should know this fact. Yeah, it's it's actually a judgment call. <laughs> we'll leave this question to our audience to decide for themselves what the U.S. and other G7 countries bring this initiative to the area really for. But lastly, I got a final question to all of you. How likely, how likely is it that this initiative ends up being a you know a successful contemporary version of the U.S. Marshall Plan, if if you will? Uh, probably let's start with um, uh, Joseph. I think uh, I think it has no chance if we want to compare it to the Marshall Plan. No chance. I think the thing we have to look at is we, we keep seeing all of these sort of reactionary projects and programs coming out of Washington, and it, it says more to do with trying to respond to what China than really trying to construct something long term. The U.S. left the TPP. We famously blame Trump for that, but in fact, even before Trump came in and formally took the U.S. out of the process, there was no chance that TPP was going to pass the U.S. Congress. Treaties have to be ratified by Congress. So instead, we're, we're building these projects and programs by administration. Now, the Biden administration approval rate, uh, rating now is somewhere in the mid to low 30s. He's expected to more than likely lose uh, at least one and, and possibly both houses of Congress, the Senate and, and the House of Representatives in the midterms later this year. He's not even really able to get his own uh, domestic infrastructure plan up and running. Um, as the professor pointed out, U.S. infrastructure is famously degraded. Um, there is one incentive for American companies to go abroad. And you mentioned the, the project in California. My brother's a civil engineer in California. Uh, it, the, given the, the tremendous number of, of environmental laws and regulations, it's very difficult to get a project approved and then to keep it moving forward. There are a lot of activist groups that are constantly looking for opportunities to derail the project. And this discourages a lot of uh, companies from, from doing business in California and in other places because they know that they're going to get stretched over the long term. Now, one of the things that we've seen out of Washington is, is the, the, the idea that this is going to be connected to the blue dot network uh, principles of you know being uh, friendly to the environment. But again, I think most of these projects are small scale. They're not, they're not major impact things like building a hydroelectric dam or, or a railroad. So uh, ultimately, I think what we're looking at here is uh, something that the Biden administration has dreamed up that might or might not survive uh, the midterm elections uh, as, a, as a policy or program. And uh, very doubtful, would it survive uh, the end of his first term in office? Because all indications are now he won't make it to a second term. Right. And I think I think most companies know this. Most companies know this. Yeah. And indeed, most companies, most companies, by the way, <laughs> uh, support the Republicans and they hope he loses his office. Um, uh, Jiting, very briefly. In short, I hope that uh, in the time to come that uh, China and the United States, even with the European countries, can have close cooperation in the infrastructure project all over the world. But uh, of course, uh, my personal view is that I'm very pessimistic not optimistic about the U.S.-led project because first, there is not capable to do such project outside of the U.S. Because in the U.S. itself, they have many projects that are downgraded in many years. They need renovation, new construction. So, and also, their administration by now has a 
try to get the uh, financing support budget from the Congress for two trillion and six trillion US dollar, but it's so difficult to get the funding from the government. So it takes already too long time to make such decision. So as I, I have so many friends in the United States, they told me that Mr. Liu, next 10 years later, you come here, my road is still the same as before. So the bureaucracy is very serious in the United States decision-making. This is a very challenging for the US administration. In European countries also, all these politicians, they are not really interested to help these uh, developing countries because they're only interested to get the votes. If the, before the voting of the election, they have always promised too much, but they have done too less. This is the totally different as China, as the Chinese government. Well, China is always honored this world. So this is totally different. That's why the Chinese project has always high efficiency has always high uh, function and also reputation. But of course, China always have that so difficult uh, challenge from the Western media because they are likely to stigmatize China's uh, behavior. Whatever China has done, always always misunderstood by Western. This is uh, critical because, uh, so that's why I told my friends in the Western country, you are not a democracy, you only have they're more crazy. <laughs> right. Um, as usual, we, we start with the lady and wrap this up with the lady. May, please. Good, good. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Oh, I think, of course, um, I'm also uh, pessimistic about this US-led initiative. But I think the success of the failure of this initiative largely depends on a number of factors. First, of course, like what Joseph said, uh, for the US to get this deal going, it needs bipartisan support. Uh, the second thing, uh, it depends on how committed are the other G7 countries and, of course, the private sector. So far, we know there is already this plan called Build Back Better World, which was announced last year uh, by G7, but yet we have not seen anything concrete as of now. So it's actually very uncertain how successful this new G7 initiative would be and also how similar and different it is from Build Back Better World. And I think lastly, like what Joseph says, I totally agree uh, that we're not sure whether Biden will get elected or not in the next election. So if he does not get elected, would the next president continues with this initiative that was announced by Biden administration? So this is something uh, I think we need to consider. Right. Yes. All in all, uh, we hope that um, the U.S. and its allies could bring something really good for, for the people of this region. All right. That brings us to the end of this episode of Chat Lounge. Many thanks to Dr. Lee Peimei, Assistant Professor of Political Science at the International Islamic University, Malaysia. Liu Jutin, Senior Fellow at the Chongyang Institute for Financial Studies of Beijing-based Renmin University of China, and Professor Joseph Mahoney of East China Normal University in Shanghai for sharing your insights with us. You can leave a review for us either on the topic or on the show. Please subscribe to the Chat Lounge for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Tu Yun. Thank you for listening. See you next time. Sideline Story brings you all things sports-related. The hottest topics, latest events, juiciest stories, all with a very personal take. Subscribe to Sideline Story Podcast for heated sports discussions covering events that are happening in China and around the world.